0: Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of The Moments That Made Me, The Weekend Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Hello and welcome to The Moments That Made Me, the podcast that asks people about the key moments, good and bad, personal or professional, that shaped their lives. The moments that made them. This week, Maeve Higgins talks to Kira McDonnell about how she became fascinated with the idea of emigration as a child growing up in Cove, and how moving to America has opened her eyes to her own privilege as a white Irish woman. She talks about Joe Biden and the Irish Americans in power in America, and about the moment that she realised Nora Ephron's view of New York is very different to the reality. Enjoy. Maeve Higgins! We're very glad to have you. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us for the weekend podcast. We love you. Oh,
1: Kira, I'm in love with you. So Are you? That's here we it. go. I've been stalking you for a long time. So look, we have a
0: lot to talk about today. And yeah. I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for all the beautiful, prolific writing you've been doing around the subject of immigration, because I think you've been instrumental in putting a human face on what's going on in terms of the immigration story in America for us so thank you for that and i want no
1: it's my pleasure you know i'm from cove so i think that like growing up in cove makes you so aware of migration like of people leaving if you know what i mean so i think it's since i was small that i've been thinking about like oh people leaving um so it wasn't a big jump for me honestly You've been in America for seven years now, isn't that right? Yeah, I think, you know, I arrived in January. I was only thinking about this the other day. So I think it's eight years now, but yeah. Give or take,
0: (laughs) give or take. (laughs) So look, has it changed an awful lot? I mean, the landscape of America has changed a huge amount in that short time, presumably. And um, I was talking to you about this earlier. Uh, something that's really, really struck me about this time now, because, of course, Biden is now president of America, an Irish-American president. It's a big thing. It's a very successful <laughs> time. But my child is reading Under the Hawthorne Tree at the moment. And it's the first wow. time. Yeah. And it's the first time the famine story of Ireland has hit him. And it's hit him in exactly the same way that it hit me and probably hit you. He's completely Enthralled and horrified that this happened and mm. happened not so long ago, and then to me, I was thinking that that's the opening for so many of us to this story mm. of Ireland in America and and the Irish Americans. And I was wondering if that that's how you felt when you when you read it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think um, it was. You know, I don't remember like the moment it struck me because, as I said, like growing up in Cove. You're kind of like always, (laughs) I seem to remember like when I was, how old is your little boy? He's 10. He's 10. Yeah. So like, yeah, I was in national school and I remember like, I think it was a historian or something visited us and was telling us all about the coffin ships and then about the Lusitania and like all these different tragedies. Um, But certainly I think leaving is a really big part of, you know, uh, the Irish, Um. I don't know, like, Kira, if you say, like, there's this term blood memory, and it's kind of clearly we're grand. <laughs> like, you know, like, I was born, I grew up in the 80s. Like, it's nothing happened to me as, you know, like, yes, the 80s were rough, but I was just a little kid. so. But anyway, I do think there's this passed down pain in the Irish experience. And that maybe starts with when you're 10 and you read, like, Under the Hawthorne Tree. And isn't it? Gorgeous that he can relate to that, though. Like, it's kind of amazing work on behalf of children's writers. And I think to get a fictional story to make people understand, like, their their past. So, yeah, I think there's some kind of understanding there that's that's maybe in ourselves or something.
0: I think Um, there is. I think. And also, it's not that long ago. It's not. I mean. It's really funny because my ten-year-old's biggest thing at the moment is how were three children allowed to walk across Ireland by themselves with no adults searching. I'm like, he clearly hasn't realised the horrors that they're going to face yet. No, (laughs)
1: look at you you laughing. I know I mean, this is like the satisfaction that a mom gets in lockdown is like okay get ready for some emotional turmoil little boy it's coming
0: um so look I then started thinking about the fact that you're from Cove and of course um I live in the old head of Kinsale where the Listania went down so we are very familiar with uh oh the, my God. the marine tragedies that have that have hit us around here but yeah uh, <laughs> One of the first things that we did when, when we moved to Cork was head out to Cove because we did the Titanic Museum. Mm. We went out to Spike Island. We uh, really familiarised ourselves with the tragedies that, that have, have happened around. Yeah, but, it was
1: just a, a fun day out. A fun day out.
0: But two and a half million people left Cove um on the mm. coffin ships and they went all over the world, of course, and they, they went to America. And um the reason why I want to talk about this was you find yourself made in America and it's this changing time you're an immigrant, you're an emigrant, you're both. And yet, as an Irish person in America, you are afforded more privilege than lots of other people living there in in the same kind of circumstances.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see, um, you know, how far Irish people have like climbed up the ladder. And of course, now Irish Americans are incredibly powerful. Like, as you said, Joe Biden is the president and he identifies as Irish. And quite specifically too. you know, um, like he calls himself an Irish Catholic. He name checks his great, great grandparents who left from, I think it was Mayo. Um, And so I do wonder with him, and I wrote about this recently, um, like how deep it goes, because a lot of Irish Americans sort of borrow the culture and it's kind of this sentimental touchstone, you know, with the the poetry and the um, the twinkle in the eye, like, you know, he kind of yells at a BBC reporter, I'm not going to answer your question, you know, like I'm Irish, joking, a light touch, you know. Um, and then uh, we have Irish Americans who were previously in government, like, Uh, Mike Pence, again, grandfather from Mayo, so even closer ties. And Mick Mulvaney, who was the, um, you know, there's there's a scene like here that I can't that is so telling to me about Irish America, which was on St. Patrick's Day, I think in 2017. Anyway, you know how they all go all out and they wear shamrocks on St. Patrick's Day and like the Taoiseach visits. And it's a real Irish day, which is Really powerful access that this small island has you know to America, which is still such a big powerhouse, but anyway, Mick Mulvaney was there wearing the shamrocks as he sat and cut uh famine relief uh budgets oh my God. like it is so ironic, so like as you say yeah i'm I'm Irish over there, and I can see how different my experience is to um you'd say like the Irish of today who. You know, I think sometimes it's not like a straight comparison, but I do think, say, Syrians now with their, uh, you know, they had a revolution. They just wanted to be governed fairly, which you could say the Irish were the same during our War of Independence. Um, they wanted to be governed fairly. Then things went really awry and they had a massive civil war. And uh, now they just need a safe place to live. That's just like the Irish. Or you could look at the South Sudanese, who, again, colonised brutally for, you know, many years, just like the Irish. Um, and then, you know, ethnic divisions, again, like the Irish. So there's, you know, there's more people on the move now, kind of forced migration, you'd say, the way we had during the famine years, uh, than there has been since World War II. So there's massive, there's millions of people who need Safety and need asylum, and I think both the U.S. and and Ireland are totally failing on that, um, on that front. So sometimes I wonder, you know, and I try and point out that what I think is the obvious, but I feel like they know, but they just decide not to do anything about it, you know, or or to deliberately turn away. What has it been like living
0: there f- during the last four years? And also, were you aware? all the time that you were living in New York, which had a vastly different kind of political attitude to lots of other Mm -hmm. places in America. Like when I think of it, I think of it as kind of a continent as opposed to um, a country like we would Ireland, because people in New York seem to think so differently. um, And, (laughs) you know, know, maybe you could speak about that, what, what it was like living there at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a helpful way of thinking about America. I, I kind of thinking about it like as, you know, as Europe with all of these different states who have different traditions and cultures, and um, yeah, it's such a it's such a wild place, isn't it? And the differences between you know, they say like people on the coast and then um people in the center of the country, people in the south, you know, um and yeah, I I mean I chose New York, like it was more, I want to live in New York than I want to go and live in America. Um, And it does have such a different character to so many other cities and states. And I think as well, um, you know, New York is an Irish town still, and it's also an immigrant town. One in three New Yorkers were not born in America. And uh, then even more have parents who are immigrants. So it's it's very attuned to the uh, migrant experience um and and then there's all the other reasons that you would choose to live in New York you know it's this place of ambition and culture and all that great stuff so um I would say like to your question about what it was like living there I suppose I moved there towards the end of the Obama administration and um or like you know he had a few years left and uh I started to get interested in migration because, like you said, I moved there like it's not easy for an Irish person to move there, but it's not that it's it's a fortress for most people. (laughs) Like if you're from India or if you're from, you know, Africa or very much like white people are, um, it's easier for white people to get in. (laughs) And I that was kind of inescapable. Um, And then I started paying attention to There was an awful lot of, um, back in sort of 2013, 2014, there was a lot of unaccompanied minors arriving at the southern border, like thousands and thousands of children showing up uh, with no grown-ups with them. You know, speaking about under the Hawthorn tree, it's like these kids were walking, taking the train, going through huge stress, huge danger. And, you know, that was the Obama administration, and I don't think they handled it well, and under the Obama administration, too, they deported more people than the previous three administrations. So it wasn't all perfect (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination under Obama. Um, You know, I really think he failed on migration massively. And of course, Biden was his VP. So that's when I started to kind of tune in, I think. Um, And then, as you know, with uh, Trump coming in, you know, he he opened his campaign by calling Mexicans names and, and saying he was going to ban Muslims. So it very quickly uh, got worse. But I would say, like, I was devastated in 2016, you know, when he was inaugurated. Um, But I didn't even know how bad it was going to be. Like, I thought I had a good handle on this, And, you know, I thought I was like worried enough. <laughs> but it's, I mean, what a wild time right like and all my family at home are like what are you doing there (laughs) what were you doing there like were you all
0: just shouting at each other the whole time did it feel like suspended animation were you
1: what was it like I I mean it still feels like we're in it because of the repercussions you know and obviously the pandemic was so badly handled um so I'm I, I feel like now in New York where like as you said it's you know, very Democrat town. And, you know, I'd have a hard time meeting Trump supporters, honestly, as in like um, even finding them in New York. They're there, like they're in Staten Island and they're upstate and everything. And and of course, Trump supporters, you know, are they're wealthy, they're white. Like it's I'm not saying, you know, there's a very common misconception, I think, that, you know, all oh, Trump supporters are like in the middle of the country and they're kind of um you know socioeconomically they're poorer that's not true um so yeah i think being in new york it was very much like you felt like you were fighting uphill for years and um and now everyone is like wrecked <laughs> exhausted <laughs> and hoping that things will turn a corner you know
0: green and blacks wildly deliciously organic a selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. And can I ask you, did you become more aware of this privilege that we now call it? Recently, were you aware of it when you went to America? Has it become something
1: that you think about all the time? Yeah, it's it's been a process, I think, and it's ongoing, um, sort of figuring out what um, how much like what I am plays into my experience in the world. And I think it's been useful to live in America because of the Black Lives Matter movement who've really helped me to understand and to learn more and to, um, about whiteness, you know, like it's funny because sometimes when you talk about race in America, everyone immediately starts talking about, you know, oh, yeah, like black people deserve this or as a black person. But but like I'm like, oh, my God, it's whiteness. Like that's what we need to explore, uh, especially as a white person. Um, So it's been, yeah, I'd say it's a process. Like still, like there are obvious things to me, right, which, like I said, I understood quite quickly that um, it was easier for me to get a visa to actually get into America in the first place because I'm European, because I'm white, Um, you know, because i'm not uh a mig- uh, refugee um because i'm basically like one of the very top very lucky percentage of the world um and uh that was like a kind of a okay maybe you can't get away from that like it's there in 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 black and white in front of you and um, seeing the treatment of black migrants is like is really eye opening um so there was that. But then there's also like all these tiny little kind of cultural things that still strike me. Like the other day, um, my friend Lali Adafope, who's this really great British. um, She's an actress and she's a comic and she's a friend of mine. And she posted a page from Nora Ephron's book, Heartburn. I love Nora Ephron. Like I love When Harry Met Sally, I think is just like so brilliant and funny and I'm always like so proud of Nora Ephron. She's like a woman in film and she's there leading the charge comedy. And, you know, and this bloody, this thing she says in this book about the main character has like, her dad has married her the housekeeper and she makes fun of the woman's blackness, of her uh, weight, of her skin, of her hair. Like she goes in on this character. And I was reading and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And it just, it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh. And then I started thinking about Nora Ephron's work. And this again is not to be like, I'm cancelling Nora Ephron. Like, I think she's wonderful. I think she's written incredible things and I'm so grateful that she worked as hard as she did, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, oh, I learned a lot from her. And part of what I learned is that, uh, white blonde ladies should be the lead in romantic comedies. And I learned that New York is full of white people because that's how she portrayed it. It's just not realistic, you know, so. But um, why, are, and these why sound do we like, only see this now, though? Like, why? Well, I think because of the work of activists and I think because of the really, you know, people, I can see it now today. Right. But people have been saying this, you know, for hundreds of years, like, you know, Frederick Douglass was, you know, a formerly enslaved person who wrote so incredibly, W.E. Du Bois, who wrote so incredibly about like the invisibility of the Black experience to white people. And I think being white, especially in America, I would say, because they have this grotesque history of enslaving Black people, like being white, it's such a It's so alluring because it does come with this power, whether you like it or not, it's not up to you. You just get an advantage for a white. So I'm, you know, I'm just interested to learn more. And I and I little things like that happen quite a lot where I'm like, oh, this is what they're talking about, about like um, white supremacy being kind of insidious, insidious. Yeah, exactly. It's not like Nora Ephron was in the clan. No, like it's just these tiny things where you learn um, this is the most valuable lens to look through. And it's like a white lady. And, you know, the sad thing about that is obviously the discrimination and the anti-blackness. But the other sad thing is like, wait, I want to hear stories and I want to know the experience of like loads of different people. It makes for a much interesting and much more interesting um cultural experience. It makes for a much more interesting, like life, basically, when you're not just kind of told all of the time, these are the people who are important. Like, let's listen to them and shut out everyone else. It's actually like the kind of trick of it all that helps me think about it is like, <laughs> nobody's trying to like decimate racism or anti-blackness for the sake of black people. Like for me, it's like nobody's free until everybody's free. So like white people in America are really losing out on such a lot um, by perpetuating this myth of white supremacy.
0: But the interesting thing about the founding fathers and so many of them having slaves at the time and Mm -hmm. this idea of America being built on this. So America being the land of the free, but no, only certain people, only rich white men maybe, um mm-hmm. not women, not slaves. That when you start from that point, then
1: it's very hard to crumble down, isn't it? I know. And if you think about it for two minutes, it gets really dark because it's like, you know, that Stephen King book where like they built on a Indian burial ground, and so nothing went right from then on. It's like, <laughs> really, you know, Native Americans they're they're very much still there and are hugely important and, um, politically and culturally, and you know they're still there. But the thing is, there was still a genocide to form this country. And then on top of the genocide, there was this um, terror of chattel slavery, which hasn't, was not actually, hasn't been replicated and never existed in such a way. Like that specific type of slavery is unique to the American experience. So, you know, you can kind of say like, how could it ever work out? (laughs) Um, But that's just not really acceptable to say that because, you know, here we are, it's a few hundred years later, there's brilliant thinkers and activists. And, you know, uh, this is the situation like that we're in, uh, in America. So how best to move forward? And is that, yes, by looking backwards and, you know, thinking about reparations and thinking about um, solid kind of uh, recognition of that history, because even that has not happened, you know, just people understanding their history. It's, it's taken me a really long time to get to grips with, you know, like, as you said, that the Declaration of Independence signed by, you know, all of those men, like it's it's beautiful and it's so aspirational. But then you learn, oh, but they thought it was they owned people. Like, that's so bonkers. Why would you listen to them? That was insanity and cruelty that we could not imagine. Um, But at the same time, that's what that's how this particular nation started. Um, So I think learning more and um, trying to understand more and trying to uh, listen to voices that are have been saying this for a really long time. It's only good. It's only positive.
0: And the really good thing is, that it started a worldwide conversation. So it's trickling all over the world. I mean, take it back home. Look at the situation we're in now. Look at the last few weeks with the mother and baby homes. And then we reflect that on our direct provision situation. And it's making mm. us really think. And it's making us mm. hopefully mobilised to be... to make change and to to stop this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely been following that. I think... Um you know, as a system, direct provision is kind of, um, it's so flawed and it's so dangerous. And uh, like you mentioned, the mother and baby homes, um, there's historians and uh, legal historians now who have, uh, who are collecting direct provision documents. They're FOIA, the government, and they have the documents. And that's all for when there will be a tribunal, when there will be an investigation into direct provision. Like it kind of, it like blows my mind. It's like, OK, so they know certainly, you know, Maasai and the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland has been saying it now for, you know, 20 years that this is really inhumane. It's not working. So isn't it strange that like it's still in place and like with the mother and baby homes, it's in front of your nose, but you don't see it almost, but as you're saying, you know, this kind of new awareness, I suppose, of, you know, that the Black Lives Matter have started uh, can help and it is traveling. And like, isn't it such a genius? It's so simple, like three words that you just, people have such an issue with them, but it's very straightforward. Like it's, if you ever kind of get lost in the weeds or you're sick of thinking or talking about it as a white person that I just think like, oh yeah, that's like, Black lives matter. It's not hard. <laughs> Where do you see your place in this? Because Maeve, we know you from being
0: Maeve Higgins, the gas ticket to now being yeah. Maeve <laughs> Higgins. You. That, well, you are a gas ticket, but also <laughs> now you're a commentator on, and a very valuable commentator on an extremely important part of what will be history of note where do you see your your part in this because like even the your collection of essays in america was just beautifully written but more the collection of stories that you told on your podcast where you were um speaking to all these different people about their their immigration experiences and it, it was so touching and also enlightening where where do you
1: see yourself in all this Oh good, well, thanks for listening and and for reading and I think um, yeah, we made the podcast where uh it was it's funny actually because both of those sides kind of collided because I said I would make a comedy podcast about immigration, <laughs> and then um that was early in two thousand and fifteen when we pitched it and sold the idea. And I meant it. I was like, yeah, we're going to do like a funny light take on immigration and, you know, discuss the issues, but also just like have a fun comedy podcast. And then like Trump was elected, the Muslim ban came down, um, refugee numbers were caught, uh, all this terrible uh, deportations got ramped up of family, you know, of not. Anyway, you know what happened? Like it was a disaster. So the podcast got serious pretty quickly. Um. So not to say that I've lost the comedy part of myself. I still write like silly, funny stuff, and I really treasure that. And like I was in like a comedy horror film, you know, two years ago. But uh, I I don't know really where I fit in, but my I try and follow my curiosity. And I think uh, I still love doing silly and funny stuff. Um. And comedy is really important, I think, in every in everyone's life. Yeah. Um, but I also still uh I'm really drawn to uh thinking and talking about, you know, migration <laughs> and <laughs> bigger questions. So I don't know where that will end up really. But um I'm lucky to be able to pursue my curiosities in that way. You know, I really am. Like it's very rare to be able to do that you know
0: Maeve Higgins thank you so much for speaking to us it has been a joy and also a learning experience for me so thank you oh god sorry for preaching but it was so nice to talk to you thank you thank you so much (laughs) thanks to Kira and of course Maeve Higgins sound and editing by JJ Vernon we'll see you next time Imagine.